Good morning, good morning. This is Gillian from Rest Reflections. Welcome to this episode of Outwork, our fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice and oppression in the workplace. And so today I will be your host with a cold. I've got something going on. I think it's just a cold. And so my voice is a little bit funny because I am a little bit stuffy. So I apologize. I hope I don't sound too odd. I will try to speak slowly for this episode of Outwork. But as usual, I would like to invite your question, your queries, your dilemma. So if you would like to get in touch, please do so via email using Outwork at restreflections.co.uk or contact at restreflections.co.uk. And we are approaching the end of the year. I can't believe it. It's the end of the year. A lot has been happening and I wasn't sure really how to almost wrap the year. We still have, I think, a couple of podcasts to come. And so today I'm going to go with the flow. I wanted to reflect on what has been the most impactful for me this year. Of course, there's been White Man, which has come out, I think, about two and a half weeks ago, about three weeks ago. There is Creative Disruption. And so that is my third book, as some of you might know, which is now due. The manuscript is due in about 10 days. I can't believe it. And for those who don't know about Creative Disruption, it is a book, it is a collection of essays. It's more of an academic book, this. It's, it's a scholarly publication, which is part of the psychosocial studies published by Macmillan. And you might say it is a book which aim to question methodological slash onto epistemological matters when it comes to psychosocial inquiry. So it's a interdisciplinary, I'm going to use quotation mark for that. And so it's a book that asks the question, how do we do methodology? How do we engage with scholarship in a way that disrupt in a way that engages with the subject matter of our inquiry, of our research, of our scholarly production, but also allow us to do things differently as knowledge producers in a way that kind of maybe challenges some of the things that we take for granted when it comes to conceptualizing what constitutes knowledge. So within the collection, we have included so much fun stuff, poetry, fiction, non-fiction, art. We have included non-traditional forms of thinking about knowledge, feeling about knowledge. I mean, it's a great, great, great book. I'm really, really excited to see it come to shape. 
So that manuscript is due in about two weeks. It should come out at some point next year. So that is the third book. And it is a volume that I am edited with peers at Burbeck. So this is at the forefront of my mind. And maybe this is what I'm going to talk about. It's quite scholarly. And I'm going to try to take it a little bit down a notch because I don't want to lose too many people who are not into kind of academic conversation and scholarly debate. And I guess this is where I wanted to go. One thing that's been on my mind as I have been, you know, developing as a scholar and growing as an intellectual, I don't very much identify as an academic. Some people call me that. I resist the label very much. I don't consider myself an academic. And there is a reason why I don't consider myself an academic. Because I think academia has been quite violent to me, particularly psychology, I find has been quite violent to me as a black woman and as a black woman thinker. I talk about that in White Mind in the preface a little bit. And in the introduction, I go into that a bit more. And throughout the book, there are autoethnographic notes dotted throughout the book. And I explain why I have found that field quite violent. I go into that actually also in, uh, in creative disruption. And so that experience of, you might say, alienation, kind of marginalization, exclusion, violence within academia has been central to my life, to my scholarly life, to the existence of rest reflections, as I have spoken about in a number of podcasts. So it's quite central to my growth, to my being as a thinker, as a disruptor, as an anti-racist, as an anti-oppressive practitioner and cliche. So that's quite important. But I guess the chapter that I have written is a chapter that was centered on my contribution to the conference, which gave birth, you could say, to the manuscript, to the volume, which was on Congolese music and the kind of onto-epistemic issues. So the worldview, the kind of value for people who are not too familiar to this language, the belief system, if you prefer, that underlie how Congolese music is practiced, is dance, and what we can learn from the practice of African music at large. And I'm talking at a moment where Afrobeat in, especially in, in the English speaking world, but we could really say globally, really, it's the moment for Afrobeat. And I hope it, it remains so for a long time. African music, although Afrobeat is an interesting case study for the African descended diaspora because Afrobeat is also, we might say, it's a hybrid kind of child of the African diaspora. And I think that's why it's such a beautiful thing that it is doing so well globally. And I think it's cause for celebration across the diaspora because there are bits of so many of us in the genre, as you say, genre, which is really, as I, as I say, as I correct people, is genre. But nonetheless, so Afrobeat is doing so well. I'm talking about African music in my contribution to the volume. And I spoke about Congolese music in my conference presentation a couple of years ago when we were facilitating this conference, which eventually turned into this volume so we extended the conference call into this volume, which became Creative Disruption, which was 
initially the theme for the conference. So this is how things pan out. But putting two and two together, I guess my interrogation, my provocation, my question to you people, especially if you are a member and if you follow our work, is to ask whether we do enough with the creative, within rest reflection. I know that one of the criticism that I hear a lot in terms of me personally as an individual is that I'm too intellectual. I don't know. I really don't know. Because people who know me very well also tell me that I'm highly sensitive. And I remember one thing. I'm going to share something else that's quite personal. I remember when I met my analyst. So my analyst is a psychoanalyst and he's also a group analyst. I've been with him for over a decade. I think 11 years or something like that. I have been in psychoanalytics, psychotherapy and and in psychoanalysis for a long time. But I was with this one person for 11 years, 10 and a half years. The first time I met him, he'd say something along the line that, you know, very sophisticated thinking or blah, 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 something along the line. And then we started thinking about feeling and feeling about thinking, you know, this the, the kind of overlap or connection or relationship between feeling and thinking. And his view was very clear that people who think deeply feel deeply at the same time. So it's usually not the split that we tend to see. So when people say you think very deeply or in a very sophisticated way about things, which people who know me very, I would say quite superficially, say to me, they might miss that I also feel quite deeply. So it's both things. But I guess the question is, is whether we connect to both things within rest reflection. Certainly as part of my writing for the creative disruption piece that I've been trying to bring a bit more of that affective capacity to my writing, to my knowledge production. So how we can use that power, the power to feel, right? The power of the erotic, which is essentially how Audre Lorde described and conceptualized the erotic, the capacity to feel deeply. This is what Audre Lorde think the erotic provide if we choose to tap into. But I've been thinking whether as an organization, we provide sufficient space for that. Now, there is plenty of gatekeeping around that capacity for society, for people at large, but particularly for women. And I'm going to invite you to go back to Audre Lorde's words and to read that piece, Theoretic as Power. I mean, that's a classic, seminal piece. And of course, my writing was really centered around it to make the connection between the African music and the power of dancing, the power of the hips, censoring of women's sexuality, the policing of women's body and the policing of the erotic. And all this thing is connected. But I guess what, again, I'm returning to is whether as an organization, you guys think that we are doing enough or whether we are also playing into that splitting of our rational self and our erotic self, or another way, our feeling self and our thinking self. And if we are, and I suspect that we are, then what 
could be done about it. And I say, I suspect we are because as a society in this country, in this culture, this is what we tend to do. This is what we tend to do. This is pretty much the culture. This is the status quo. And if this is the status quo, then by default, pretty much, unless we take counter-cultural action, unless we take deliberate action consistently, then this is where we are going to be. And I guess that takes me to the latest piece that I wrote. And so all these things is connected, you see, because things are really much alive in my mind around how do we do knowing? How do we do scholarship? How do we do anti-racist work? How do we do anti-oppressive work in a way that remain disruptive, in a way that remain challenging? To us and to the world and to the institution that read, that listen to, to what we do, that keep pushing, that keep pushing the boundaries of art and the boundary of science. That piece, again, was about intelligence and what is intelligence. And so I go a little bit around that, around my journey of growth as a scholar and also as a woman, because the two things, you know, the personal is political and the line and the boundaries between the personal and the political is also something that takes us back to that same spirit, right? The, the Cartesian dualism, the head and the body, the head and the heart. I think a little bit, I feel a little bit in terms of how I have enacted also in my personal politics and in my romantic life, that dualism, that split, we could even say, thinking about who I would want to entangle, let's say, myself with and how actually I realised that who I was seeking was not necessarily who I needed. Yes, I think there's really something for us to think about together as a community, and for us to rethink together as a community. And I guess that's the invitation, rather than, you know, for me to provide the solution. It's the provocation. How do we reconnect body and mind? How do we reconnect rationality and corporality? How do we reconnect heart and head as an organization so that our dismantling work, so that our disruptive work, so that our anti-racist and our anti-oppressive work continues to allow us to grow and to be connected to the world and to each other. So this is what I'm going to leave you with, an invitation to think and to think together with us for the year to come. I have some suggestion. Things are going to come. We are going to do things slightly differently in terms of connection. I'll give you some clues in the podcast to come. But please tell me what you think. Email me, talk to me, get in touch. Tell me what you think. I hope I made sense. And also, I hope I made no sense so that you continue to think with me. That's all I'm going to say. An unusual podcast, like sometimes they are when I'm using live and when I'm trying to think aloud. And I hope that's okay too. Thank you very much for listening, my good people. And as always, please take care.
subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send us queries, questions and dilemmas to be reflected on, please email at work at racereflections.co.uk.